Do you think that Biden's stance on Israel might decide whether or not he's reelected? I don't see any good ways out for Biden on this one. I think there's less bad and more bad ways out. The danger of this moment for him politically is that it becomes for him what Vietnam was for Lyndon Johnson. I mean, you can't control events around the world as the American president, but you have to respond to them. And there's no good way to respond to this one. That's my colleague, Andrew Morantz. Andrew comes on the podcast a lot because he reports on far right and far left political movements. And we happen to live in a world of extremes. Last week, he wrote a piece about how Biden's support for the Israeli government's war on Gaza has divided the Democrats and could well shape the 2024 election. Then, new polls came out, showing Biden falling behind Trump in some key swing states. You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. So what has been the Democratic Party line on Israel, like, up until now? I think for many decades, it was kind of staunch bipartisan support. And by support, I mean, like, kind of, you know, we can critique or issue a strongly worded statement, but we're not going to withhold aid. We're not going to condition aid on anything. And Netanyahu has been around for a long time and under successive governments has done more and more uh, horrific stuff. I mean, he's he's the current government of Israel when this happened was the most right wing government in Israeli history. And for a long time, the setup in American politics was you can issue a statement having concerns about it. You can talk about it. But we still have this bipartisan consensus that Israel is our staunchest ally and, you know, we need to support them almost kind of whatever they do. And that in the last few years has really been fraying. And it it kind of has led to a, I would say, an unprecedented breaking point. There has there have been a series of breaking points, you know, the 2021 uh, conflict in Gaza, um, different votes over the Iron Dome. There have been multiple breaking points. But this one, October 7th, was a huge breaking point within the Democratic Party. And so you would say that October 7th itself was the breaking point and not, you know, something that happened later as the sort of military action kicked up. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, it's interesting what we mean by supporting Israel, right? Yeah. So <laughs> there are many people whose position is Israel exists. It is a nation state that is on the map that's not going anywhere. But like Baldwin said, we <laughs> because it exists, we have the right to criticize it. And I think that's the position of many, many people. It's certainly the position of many left-wing Jews in Israel and in the United States. But on October 7th, right away, it was very clear that there had been this horrific attack by Hamas and there was going to be a massive, deadly response from Israel. I think anybody who was looking at any of these breadcrumbs could see that right away. So, you know, to your question, I don't think you saw elected Democrats in Washington not standing with Israel in the sense that they didn't condemn the attacks or say that Israel is a is a country that has the right to defend itself. But you saw people right away starting to call for de-escalation because they knew that there was going to be this massive response. I don't think people could have known exactly what form it would take or that it, you know, might cross boundaries of international humanitarian law, but they knew there would be a big response. So, like, right away, the, the, the two responses that stick out in my mind were Ilhan Omar and AOC. The first thing they said was, we strongly condemn these attacks. Ilhan Omar called it senseless violence on the part of Hamas. And then in the same 
tweet. It's her pinned tweet or her X or whatever the hell. She said, um, and I, I call for a ceasefire. So you had Omar and Ocasio-Cortez saying, this is a horrific attack. And I forget if they have explicitly said in that one tweet, Israel had a right to defend itself. But, you know, politicians from the left to the right were saying Israel is a country and it has the right to self-defense, but they were cautioning against things that went beyond the boundaries in their view of self-defense. And I was surprised the extent and the ferocity and the alacrity <laughs> with which that was condemned, not only by, you know, Fox News or, you know, Ron DeSantis, but by the Biden White House. Like, those statements, we condemn Hamas's attack and we call for de-escalation or we call for a ceasefire. Karine Jean-Pierre, the, the White House press secretary, was asked about those statements and she called them repugnant, disgusting, and wrong. She said, there are no two sides to this. Essentially, the message from the White House and from AIPAC and from other Zionist groups was, we stand with Israel in this moment has to mean we stand with any response they want to have and any attempt to constrain them or de-escalate the response is perceived as a betrayal, which that is a very specific and, to my view, dangerous definition of what it means to stand with Israel. Why do you think that so many people jumped there immediately? I mean, so right away— Because, I mean, it's funny because we're talking about this, you know, weeks after October 7th, and we've seen, you know, just sort of like the violence in Gaza. Calling for de-escalation now, you know, that doesn't seem crazy at all. Right. I I, I guess— the way I would put it is like you have international humanitarian laws for a reason and they're non-reciprocal for a reason. And so— What do you mean by non-reciprocal? So one war crime doesn't justify another. So I don't think it's at all incoherent, the position I've seen many people take, to say Hamas committed war crimes on October 7th and the position that the Israeli military committed war crimes in response. That's something that has happened many times in history— and, you know, you see Israel saying, these are bad guys, you know, we have to take them all out. There's no such thing as innocent civilians. Even if you accept the full premise that, you know, you have to take out every last Hamas target, that does not mean there's no such thing as innocent civilians. It seems so crazy to have to reaffirm that. But, like, you're not allowed to just firebomb Dresden just because you think it'll demoralize the enemy. You're not allowed to drop atom bombs on Nagasaki. This is why we have the laws of war. So the idea that laying out those parameters is somehow seen as a betrayal or, a you know, taking sides, that's actually not really taking sides. So I was surprised on a number of levels. I mean, I guess I was just surprised that the White House would choose to draw that line in that way because on so many other issues, the White House has been totally willing to work with leftists who they may not agree with on all things or they may not have the same strategic tactics for, for getting things they want. But throughout the Biden administration and even during the Biden campaign, there's been this sense from leftists and activists that I've talked to that they have someone they can go give demands to and that their demands will be heard and that they will be dealt with respectfully and that, you know, they might ask for a Green New Deal and the Biden administration might say, well, we can't do a Green New Deal, but how about, you know, Build Back Better? Or how about the Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah. Or, you know, and they'll negotiate and it might be tense and they, they might be angry, but they're not going to say you're a bad person if you want a Green New Deal or, you know, if you want racial justice or something. And then suddenly to be saying that you're repugnant and disgusting if you want a ceasefire, I think was just 
kind of shocking to some people. And I should say the White House has not taken that tone since. I mean, they have, I think, backpedaled from that. But I I think that was a a real rift that I think is not going away anytime soon. You know, look, to be clear, there are arguments against a ceasefire that I think are totally coherent. I mean, there are, you know, people who say that, what does that even mean? There were ceasefire conditions previous to October 7th that didn't have any effect. And why would we think Hamas would abide by them now? And I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders has said that. Elizabeth Warren has said that. And many people to their right. But um, I I, I guess I could have anticipated that there was no super great winning political strategy here. But I, I wouldn't have anticipated that the line in the sand would be the word ceasefire. So we've seen some progressives in Congress, like Rashida Tlaib and Cori Bush, introduce a resolution for a ceasefire. What happened after that? How was that received? So I I ended up reporting a lot on this because a lot of what I've reported on in the past has been how do mass activist movements actually move the needle on things? And this was just, I think, a really good test case of, like, how much power the progressive wing of Congress has in this moment? Um, And the answer is like some. Well, well, not none. But so this is why it's interesting. Like my view of it is that like five years ago, the answer would have been none. If you had tried to get people on a ceasefire resolution, you literally would have had zero people. Now you have 18. So that's actually somewhere between none and a majority. Are there any surprising people on that 18? Or is it like, you know, the people that we've been talking about, you know, Tlaib, Omar, AOC. So you have like Rashida Tlaib, who's the only Palestinian member of Congress, who based on my reporting and people who are familiar with her thinking, she just seemed to feel the weight of the entire Palestinian diaspora on her back. Yeah. Which is just a crazy place to put yourself. I mean, half of Gaza is children. Half the people who are dying in these Israeli bombs are children. If you imagine being the only person who can speak for that entire people, and, and if you are having people telling you there is an attempted genocide being trying to be purported against these people. Like, I think given that, she was willing to do anything. And so um, she and Cori Bush, who is from St. Louis, who started her career as a Black Lives Matter activist and has always seen herself as a movement politician, they spearheaded this resolution calling for a ceasefire. And it was kind of in response to this other resolution that got massive bipartisan support. That was the McCall Meeks resolution, which was condemning Hamas's attack against Israel. A resolution just to condemn? So it, I think it was literally called, like, standing with Israel after the barbaric terrorist attacks by Hamas. Like, the official title was something like that. And What was it going to do if it— <laughs> All of these are resolutions that just say, whereas terrorism is really bad and whereas killing people is really bad, be it resolved that we will support Israel with intelligence, with military support, and again, there was no mention in there of if they don't violate international law, if they don't commit war crimes. There was no condition. Thomas Friedman in the New York Times wrote a column saying we should condition our aid on no more settlement growth. There was nothing like that. It was just we will help them out. So it said we grieve the Israeli lives lost, we grieve the American lives lost, and then it said also any Palestinian lives lost can only be blamed directly on Hamas's actions. The response from Tlaib and Bush and other members of the so-called squad was to put out another resolution saying, this is what we would do. We would grieve all loss of innocent civilian life, and we would call for a ceasefire. It was an extremely simple resolution. It was like a page long. Mm-hmm. And 
It initially had 13 co-sponsors, basically the squad plus. But there were a bunch of people who were on the fence, including people in that orbit. So there's essentially three squad classes now. There's like the original 2018 and 2020, which is like Jamal Bowman and Cori Bush. And then 2022, which is like Maxwell Frost, the youngest member of Congress, Greg Kassar from Austin, Texas. So Frost and Kassar were both not originally on the resolution. And so there was this big push to get them on that was a kind of, you know, what what activists call the inside-outside strategy. So you had outside these massive protests. So this resolution was put out on a Monday. That Wednesday, Jewish Voice for Peace and If Not Now and a bunch of other groups brought thousands of people to the National Mall. And then a few hundred of those people went and occupied a rotunda of the Cannon House office building and went and sat there and got arrested. And these are like rabbis, people with tefillin and blowing shofars and stuff. You know, and it says not in our name on their T-shirts. So it's very much framed as a like, we Jews do not call for this. And this is referring to the thing we were talking about earlier where it had always been assumed for many decades that not only would both parties stand with Israel, but they would do it in the name of what Jewish Americans want. Yeah. And so this activism was was countering that. So as that is happening, as these people are blowing shofars and getting arrested and stuff, you have political operatives from the Jewish left running around and also like the author Naomi Klein and like all these people running from office to office meeting with different representatives and saying, you got to get on this ceasefire bill. And they're feeling cross-pressured, you know, because APAC and J Street and other pro-Israel groups are very powerful forces in American politics. I mean, it's, you know, you sometimes get accused of being anti-Semitic if you say that these groups are powerful. But I, as a Jew, am willing to say that these are powerful groups in Congress. It's not the only powerful group, but like it is a risk to cross those groups. And so, yeah, there were people who were not on that ceasefire resolution who were getting pressured from people in the movement that they had just, you know, a year before considered themselves to be a part of. I mean, Maxwell Frost, his whole life before being in Congress was being a gun control activist and going and getting arrested. And part of his political resume was that he had been arrested in civil disobedience campaigns. And now there's one down the hall protesting him. Barbara Lee, who was the only person after 9-11 who didn't vote for the authorization of the use of military force, she was on the fence. And by the end of that Wednesday, she got on board with the ceasefire resolution. Pramila Jayapal, who it, it took her a while to get on. And apparently, according to the reporting I did, some activists had to call her office. Her office denies this, but according to these activists, they called her office and said, we're coming down to your office and we're either going to be thanking you for joining this resolution or we're going to be doing a sit-in to protest you for not joining it. <laughs> and so she said, cool, thanks, and then got on the resolution. And that's why you call your Congress people. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you build a movement. I mean, yeah. yeah. You mentioned Bernie Sanders earlier, um, and I thought that his take on the whole situation was pretty interesting. He recently went on CNN and talked about why he thinks that a ceasefire is kind of impossible in this situation. So we're um, we're going to listen to that clip real quick. Well, I don't know how you can have a ceasefire, permanent ceasefire, with an organization like Hamas, which is dedicated to turmoil and chaos and destroying the state of Israel. And I think what the Arab countries in the region understand, that Hamas has got to go. So, yeah, that I think has been Bernie's position all along. He has always said through this that he didn't support a ceasefire. The left is furious at him about this. I mean, they were doing sit-ins at his office. And just to give a sense of how this has lined up politically, 
I saw APAC clipping that segment from CNN and tweeting from the APAC account, hey, progressives, this is why Bernie doesn't support a ceasefire, which is like a devious troll on APAC's part. You know, this is like a real dividing line. And I think some people, you know, it seems like just rhetoric. And in some sense it is because it's not like the U.S. Congress can pass a non-binding resolution and decide what happens in Israel. I mean, they could exert influence by withholding aid or something, but that's not even the level of conversation that, that we're getting to. This is just naming what is our strategy moving forward. But the Sanders argument, which is also the Tony Blinken argument, the Secretary of State, it's also the argument of Dan Goldman, the relatively moderate Democratic congressman from New York, is basically that Hamas won't abide by a ceasefire. It won't be an enforceable bilateral agreement. So instead, they want to call for a humanitarian pause, which is, you know, the Israeli military agrees to pauses in the bombing to allow humanitarian aid. And, you know, the part in the clip where Bernie says Hamas has got to go, again, like I think a lot of people <laughs> could agree with that. I think probably, you know, Tlaib and AOC and Cory Bush could agree with that. The question is when you say they've got to go, are you envisioning if we bomb enough buildings in Gaza, will that mean that we can get them to go? Like, is there a military solution? Is there a political solution? Is there a diplomatic solution? Is the solution ending the occupation? And then the structural forces that gave rise to Hamas won't be there anymore? Like, Hamas has got to go is a very, you know, politically safe statement to make. But like, what does it actually mean, given that there's no evidence that Israel has been cultivating, like, another governing force besides Hamas and Gaza, like, um, I mean, the last I've heard, this is we're recording this on a Tuesday, the last I've heard 4,000, 5,000 children have been killed. Like, it would be one thing if if there were, you know, Amazon drones delivering polonium sushi to each Hamas leader and they were dying one by one. But that's not what we're talking yeah. about. So this idea of, like, does Israel have the right to defend itself in a vacuum is, like, not responsive to the actual conditions on the ground. Let's take a quick break. <laughs> You'll hear more from Andrew Morantz on the political scene from The New Yorker in just a minute. Who are the political groups and what are the political forces that are dictating Democrats' decisions on this issue? Mm -hmm. Well, for a long time, the big, the big group here was AIPAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. The, this is like, you know, it's very difficult for understandable reasons to talk about Jewish influence in politics. There are many, many, I, as someone who has covered the alt-right, I understand that there are many, many anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about this, about how the American government is Zionist-occupied government or whatever. I think it's safe to say without falling into any of those anti-Semitic traps that AIPAC is a powerful force in American government. It's a bipartisan force. It, it endorses many, many Republicans, including insurrectionist Republicans. It, it purports to care about one thing and one thing only. Do you, quote unquote, stand with Israel? So they endorsed Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the mm -hmm. House, because he says he stands with Israel, right? So that's APAC. For many years, that was like a hegemonic force in American politics when it came to this issue. It was basically seen as bad politics to get on the wrong side of APAC. Then there was a sort of challenge, I guess you could say, from the left, from this group called J Street, which I think was competing more to be, you know, if APAC was, was courting Republicans, J Street wanted to sort of become hegemonic among Democrats. They wouldn't put it that way, but I think it's fair to put it that way. 
And then what about like Jewish Voice for Peace and if not now? I mean, if you had to put them all in kind of like a political spectrum. Yeah. So Jewish Voice for Peace calls itself a Jewish anti-Zionist organization. These terms are contested. Like what does it mean to be anti-Zionist is a very contested thing. Does it mean you think there should be no Israel? Does it mean that you think that the way Israel has conducted its business in the recent past is objectionable, right? But yeah, what is the working definition of Zionism right now? Because you see it attributed to a lot of different people and things. I really wish I could tell you. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think there are things that are unquestionably Zionist, like Israel can do whatever it wants and I will support it. That is a Zionist position. But it, I don't think it is the only Zionist position. I think people have a much more minimalist definition of it, which is like Israel is a country mm-hmm. and it will continue to be a country. And then anti-Zionist, by the same token, could be Israel is a fiction that should never have existed and does not exist. That's sort of like being like a sovereign citizen. Like it's like (laughs) I don't recognize your right to be a country. Or there's a version of anti-Zionism that is like the foundation of Israel was the Nakba that was displacing all these people. That is a, a tragedy and a crime that needs to be reckoned with. There's that version of it too. And so I think there is an anti-Zionist position that says, well, Israel exists now, but we need to reckon with all the ways that it has displaced and and disenfranchised and created this untenable situation. I think sort of similar to how there are people who say the United States is a country, but it was founded on displacing and, you know, doing settler colonialism to a bunch of native peoples, right? But with with groups like Jewish Voice for Peace, which was founded in 1996 – as an anti-Zionist Jewish organization, you know, I said in the piece it was a source of surus within the Jewish world, but it was not a major political powerhouse, right? There were not people in Congress quaking in their boots saying, what is JVP going to do if I – and that has really changed. And then If Not Now, which was founded in 2014 in response to the conflict in Gaza in 2014, but has come into its own in response to Trump and the kind of resistance to that. And – now with those two groups and other clusters of, you know, Palestinian rights groups and um, the Adala Project and M-Gage and other groups like that, there is now a political force that is cross-pressuring people from the left. And it's nowhere near as powerful as APAC or J Street, but it exists as a force in Washington. And now you have members of Congress who are accountable to leftist movements like this who are sitting in their office scared that Jewish Voice for Peace is going to be mad at them if they don't sign on to a bill. And then they do. They sign on to this resolution because of the pressure coming from the left. So then how does that cash out in terms of American policy? The left dug in on the position of we want a ceasefire. The right dug in on just really darkly, frankly, kind of exterminationist language, like just level the place is what Lindsey Graham said. We're in a religious war here. I am with Israel. Do whatever the hell you have to do to defend yourself. Level the place. Which is, I mean, I think fair to say genocidal language. And then what the Biden administration did was land somewhere between that, which was we want a humanitarian pause. No one's happy, but... um, If there had been no cross-pressuring from the left, if this had happened five or ten years ago, I don't know that the Biden administration would have ended up asking for a pause. I just – I don't know. You know, we talked about how there have obviously been, you know, conflicts relatively recently between Israel and Palestine. And I'm wondering why this specific conflict just feels like such a singular lightning rod in American politics and especially among the Democrats. 
Well, I mean, just first is just the unthinkable scale of it. It's just so massive and just, like, stops you in your tracks. There are many, many analogies. People bring up the analogy to World War II. People people bring up the, you know, Algeria analogy. People bring up South Africa apartheid analogy. Probably the most dominant one is the 9-11 analogy. We're a few weeks into this now. Immediately, you heard the 9-11 analogy, which I think the worry from those on the left was that that would be used as a license to just have whatever quick, massive military response. And so you heard people saying, well, let's not make the same mistakes we made, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq. And you even kind of heard President Biden saying some of that. I mean, he went to Israel and he said, you know, I stand with you. I'm a Zionist. He gave his old friend Bibi a hug. But then he said, let's not make some of the mistakes that we made in 9-11, which, again, it's not enough to pacify the left. It's not all that they wanted to hear by a long shot. But apparently, I mean, from people I've talked to, that was a hard-fought line. That was like a notable line to people who track how these speeches tend to go. But then as we've seen this unfold, the 9-11 analogy just keeps, like, by, you know, adjusting for population, it's so much more than 9-11. I mean, so basically, you have a place where both in Israel and in Gaza, everyone knows someone who's been affected. So then there's no down-the-middle position on this. Like, this is, this is just not one of those political issues where you can say, you wanted a $2 trillion climate bill and I gave you a $1 trillion climate bill. This is like, we have to decide who the good guys and the bad guys are, and there are just like opposite positions being taken on that. So I guess I'm wondering about these, you know, these poll numbers that we discussed a little bit earlier. Do we really think that people who are upset with Biden for not taking a stronger position on Israel, whether it be that they wish that he um, wasn't calling for a pause or that he had embraced a ceasefire? I mean, does it really seem like the ceasefire group is going to vote for Trump or not vote at all because they're upset with Biden? I think it's totally possible that there are people in Dearborn, Michigan, who will not be able to stomach voting for Joe Biden. I don't know how many of them there are, and I don't know if we want to talk about the raw kind of, you know, horse race politics of it, which feels a little unseemly, but, like, maybe there are some, I don't know, Jewish Zionists in Oakland County, Michigan, who will vote for Biden because of this, right? So I don't know exactly how the politics will shake out, but it is totally imaginable to me that if you are a person who you know, let's say you're Arab American and you think that the president of the United States values Israeli life over the lives of Palestinian babies and you think that the American president doesn't care if your cousins get killed, it's totally conceivable to me that that's a reason that you can't stomach voting for the guy. Even though that probably means Trump winning and he was, you know, just actively more supportive of a right-wing Israel than the Democratic presidents before him and— um I get that they can't stomach voting for Biden potentially, but, you know, wasn't it Trump who wanted to move the embassy to Jerusalem? Um, It seems like the alternative is much worse and darker for those people who are concerned about voting for Biden. I agree with that. But you see this in every facet of politics. You see people saying, well, Trump was the worst thing that ever happened, but you got to admit the guy has a lot of energy and dynamism, so I got to vote for him. Like, you see people saying all kinds of stuff. I mean, you saw in the the Times-Siena poll that came out over the weekend, there were the top-line numbers, right, that, you know, they they pulled these six swing states and 
Biden was behind, sometimes significantly behind, in five of them. He was winning Wisconsin by two points and losing Nevada by like 10 points. But if you read the article below those top line numbers, and again, this is totally anecdotal. There are people who say that polls a year out are not only worthless, but worse than worthless because they're distracting and they confuse everything. And But you read that article, and these are, you know, test case, anecdotal, one person each, but they have quotes from people saying, uh, Trump is the worst thing that ever happened. There's no way you could ever vote for Trump. But, you know, Biden, he seems kind of old, so I'm going to vote for Trump. So, like, um, <laughs> voters do not sign some, like, oath saying that everything they do will be predictable and coherent and make a lot of sense. They just vote. And so, yeah, I think you're right that Trump would be worse for Palestinian lives than Biden, no matter sort of what your calculus is. But I I don't get to dictate what people think when they go into the voting booth. Do you think that Israel should see the um, changing views of the progressive left as like an existential threat in some ways? They do see it as an existential threat. I mean, I think AIPAC does. And I think that's why you have AIPAC dropping millions of dollars on pretty small house races. They tried to beat Summer Lee. They ended ended up not being able to defeat her in Pittsburgh. But they drove Andy Levin out of Congress. You mentioned Bowman. I've heard things about maybe him getting primary. Oh, I think that the next race for Bowman, Tlaib, Omar, Summer Lee is going to be the hardest race of their lives. And I would be surprised if they all won, honestly. And I think they went into this knowing that that would be the risk. I think that the pro-Israel lobbying groups see it as an existential threat, that there be any daylight. You often hear the word daylight. There can be no daylight between the American position and the Israeli position. And so these little cracks of daylight they see as a, as a threat. If you had looked at this at any point in the last few decades, you would have just said, well, the U.S. is Israel's staunchest ally and they're never going to, you know, threaten to withhold aid if Israel, you know, keeps building settlements or violates the laws of war or something like that. And now that isn't happening. I mean, you don't have aid being withheld, but the idea is on the table. Thomas Friedman is talking about it. So that's a change. I don't think it's an immediate existential threat to the hegemony of that position, but they clearly see it as a slippery slope. Yeah, not even necessarily in our lifetimes, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, there are many things like, look, a lot of what I track in my reporting is stuff that seems immovable and unshakable and then changes sometimes relatively quickly. There's so many examples of this. This buffoon reality star Donald Trump is running for president on an open platform of racism and bigotry and being an idiot and an asshole. Like, that'll never work. That was the position from June 2015 until November 2016. And then suddenly... He has this unshakable grip on this one of two political parties in this country that will never change, right? So, like, all the never-Trump Republicans, 75% of them became Trump fealty Republicans, and suddenly the, the old status quo becomes the new status quo, and now that's the inevitable thing that will never change. So, like, I'm not saying this change is, is easy or that it always works, but it does happen. We've seen it happen, and we're just very good at assimilating the new fact and then pretending that that will never change. Yeah. But like I've done reporting on on climate politics, the idea that a president, Republican or Democrat, would make climate one of their top priorities and passing the 
biggest climate spending bill in history, that, that that's the thing they would spend down most of their political capital on. It's insane. That, that was unthinkable. And then there was a big movement to make that happen. And you can like it or not like it or think it was good or bad politics. But it's a thing that happened not only within our lifetimes, but within the last five or six years. So, yeah, I, I understand why groups like APAC are worried. Um, I don't think that, you know, the next aid bill that comes up to Israel is going to go down in flames. But I think the fact that they even have to sweat it is new for them. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. Thanks. Andrew Morantz is a staff writer. You can read his story, How Israel is Splitting the Democrats, on newyorker.com now. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with support from Sydney Cobb and Gianna Palmer. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.